0: My guest on this week's show has always been something of an underdog. It started with his name.
1: What's up, audience? How y'all doing, good? All right. All right. Um, that's dope. Uh, I'm going back home for the holidays, you know, to see my family. and uh, I'm excited to see my twin brother, uh, Jerome, right? But uh, growing up, Jerome and I had a sibling rivalry because of our names. You know, Jerome was, uh, he was named after my father, Jerome Sr., you know, which is cool. That's fine. Like, I'm off often naming your kids after you but why would you do it if you have twins? Like, does that mean? <laughs> I don't know why I laugh, but it's not nice. It's not a nice thing to do to a kid. Like, yo, if you had kids, you'd be like, oh, that's named after me. I don't know what the hell that is right there. That's a, that's a monster, get away from my kid, you monster! That's rude, you don't do that, that's favoritism. You know, like, at least name me something more creative, like Jerome 2.0, or, <laughs> or I can't believe he's not Jerome. Something nice.
0: This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was comedian Jermaine Fowler performing stand-up on James Corden's show back in 2015. Since then, his career has taken off in some big and unexpected ways. He had small but memorable roles in celebrated indie films like Sorry to Bother You and Judas and the Black Messiah. After a lot of false starts, he landed a lead role in the CBS sitcom Superior Donuts. And in 2021, he got the biggest opportunity of his career to star opposite his comedy idol, Eddie Murphy, in the sequel to Coming to America. That role may not have made Jermaine quite as famous as Eddie, but he's definitely on his way. Now he has another lead role opposite Pen15's Anna Conkle, in a new movie called *The Drop*, which premiered on Hulu this past Friday, and is the kind of really funny ensemble comedy that we really have not gotten enough of in recent years. I've always really admired Jermaine's work as a comedian and as an actor, and I am so excited for you to hear this conversation. So here's me with Jermaine Fowler. Yeah, I just got a chance to see the the movie last night, um, *The Drop*, which I thought was was really fun, just um, really funny. Kind of movie I feel like that we don't get a lot of now, which is these uh, ensemble comedies that are really funny. So yeah, congrats. Um, how how are you? How are you feeling about it with it about to come out?
1: Oh man, uh, thank you. I appreciate that. Number one, uh, and also feel the same way about the type of comedies that uh, don't get released like this anymore. So I feel good about it. I'm very proud of it. I've always wanted to be a part of um, films that I want to see, um, and th- you know that I feel like challenge me. So it's definitely. This definitely challenged
0: me, dude. Yeah, um, and it's full of really funny people, which uh, which helps as well. Um, so many great people in the movie. Um, can you kind of start by describing the premise because it has a very specific and, and kind of surprising premise? I'm sure you're sick of talking about that part of it by now, but uh, for anyone who doesn't know, can you explain what the drop is about? No, oh, no, I'm not
1: sick of it, no problem. Um, <laughs> the, drop, <laughs> the drop is about. Uh, this couple um whose uh, relationship gets tested uh after uh my wife played by Anna Conkle, drops our friend's baby, and so uh we kind of go through this um rut in our relationship uh, you know just questioning if I can raise a family, a future family with a woman who can drop a baby like that and uh honest character Lex, she's questioning her purpose in in life and what she's you know her worth and you know all these uh all these things that can kind of plague you when you're <clears throat> kind of uh in a, in a in a in a beautiful vacation resort in, in mexico it, like this shouldn't happen to somebody but it is it's a, it's a beautiful <laughs> place that's being engulfed by these insane people uh <laughs> and uh in a, a wonderful cast uh the cast is just amazing so i've been lucky
0: yeah. Your, your reaction specifically when, uh, the drop happens, I thought was pretty priceless. That shot of, uh, of how you react to it. Um, that Thanks, was a man. great that moment. Was, that was
1: my favorite shot of the film. Uh, Anna's reaction, my reaction, that was <laughs> the most beautiful, most beautifully shot things I've ever seen and contrasted by this horrific event is I think it's just hilarious. So I yeah. It's, it's,
0: so. it's gorgeous the way the, uh, the way the director captures it and, uh, in this, in this terrible moment. Um, <laughs> I I heard that there was a, there was no like real formal script for the movie, um, and that it was kind of you were working it out on the fly. So how did that actually work? Were there scenarios that then you kind of had to figure out as you went, or or what, what was that mm. like for you? Well, yeah.
1: So there wasn't a traditional script. There was a scriptment, which is a detailed outline. Um, so there were they were just uh, scenes that were blocked out for the director to share with us. We just had to kind of fill in those gaps with dialogue and the actions and things like that. So there, was, um, there were moments when we would do a first take, Well, we would rehearse and then do a first take and it'd be crazy. And then the director would come in and kind of hone us down and ground it and get us, remind us where the scene needs to go, what points to hit. It was a small crew, so we, we didn't have time to really uh, make mistakes. So there was a choreography that was there and uh, a dance that was led by our awesome filmmaker, Sarah. Ma, I just I wanted to ask you a quick question. Um, Ma, like, how common is it for someone to drop a baby? You know, baby, it happens. Sometimes parents are overwhelmed, they're tired, you know, a little too much on the plane, they may trip and fall, drop the baby, maybe the baby rolls off the sofa when they're not looking, but, but honestly, baby, That's a white people thing. Black people don't drop
0: babies. Were there any moments or anything surprising that came out of the improv uh, that kind of furthered the the story or made you think about it in a different way?
1: Yeah, Uh, our director, there were moments when, um, for example, I I had to break up with Anna Conkle's character, Lex, at the pool. And that scene ended with me crying. And there was one take when the director said, don't wipe those tears, start with the tears. And I'd be kind of in a shitty place when we started the scene so each scene was different and it was a challenge to kind of like you know push myself and you know push the characters boundaries a little bit so it was um i, I just got to thank the director and her her eye and her vision for the film so it was um that was the most memorable scene uh as far as um the uh the way it was just executed it was. Uh, it, I've, I've never been pushed that far emotionally, and I was exhausted afterwards. I it would hurt like it'd it hurt, you know, in a lot of ways to to continue to do that particular, um, um, you know, it just hurt, it's hurt a lot because uh, you know you're just channeling so much, <laughs> and you you don't want they're just they just like these little layers that that have been like kind of adding and building within my character that just regurgitated Like just blew up in one one moment and at that moment I'm remembering what I was going through and trying to remember what I improvised and using that to get to this place this painful place so it was a it was a dark and, and yet kind of in a way relief but it, it, it's it, the movie isn't over at that point I still have more to kind of figure out so it was a it was a thing I can't give away too much because when I do like where am I going to go from there it was a tricky kind of thing that, that kind of Tear, you know, in balance a little
0: bit. Yeah, I was, I was curious because you and and your co-star are both relatively new parents. Um, you know, when this when you're making this movie, and of yeah. course, you're you're the movie's about you sort of grappling with that decision to become parents. So, how did being a, a father influence your performance? You think in the way you thought about the the scenario that they're in?
1: Well, for I, example, uh, when she drops the baby.
0: Yeah,
1: I uh, remember there was a time my partner. My girlfriend dropped our baby and she, uh, I came, I didn't see it. I came back home and she was in the dark holding the baby. And I was like, (laughs) Megan. And she's like, I'm in here and go in the room. She's crying holding the baby. I'm like, what happened? She's like, I dropped her. And I just remember that face that it broke my heart. I was like, yeah, I just had to, you know, try to support her the best I could. And so when, when uh, Anna's character drops the baby, I just remember that face, man. It just really broke my heart. Also, just kind of like, she dropped a doll baby. Like, in the action, it was a doll baby. So, we keep, you know, it wasn't a real baby we dropped. We're not monsters. <laughs> yeah. But she dropped the doll baby, and I just, like, put my, 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 my son's face on that baby. and was like, you know. And that's kind of what you do, man. Uh, you, you try to connect yourself to, you know, a lot of these scenarios, these situations um, to give it life. And if you don't want to, I, you know, it's totally fine because it can get a little traumatic. But because I'm so close to the subject material, it was easy for me to find a way to, you know, put myself in specific uh, moments.
0: <laughs> How does your wife feel about you telling everyone that she dropped your baby? I've only told two people, right?
1: <laughs> I've only told two people. And she'll tell you, but it, it happens. Like, it happens. And I think it, it won't stop happening. People will make make mistakes, you know. I've, I've dropped my baby, but I haven't, like, dropped it like i have my baby yeah. up there and it's hit things, you know because i'm an idiot uh, uh, that's a
0: classic one yeah
1: it is man it's you forget how low the ceiling is or how you know <laughs> things like that i'm an idiot i'm dumb so like you know I, I, i'm not gonna not hurt them, you know like i'm just gonna <laughs> it's gonna happen you know so <laughs> you just remember that so i hope she's if she hears this interview like i hope she doesn't get mad at me because like, <laughs> you know and it's probably the first time she's uh uh maybe I hope she's not hearing about me throwing our baby into a ceiling for the first time. Oh, yeah. Time. That would Interview. be bad. Yeah, it'd be terrible. <laughs> so, but surprise, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of the message of the movie is that we're all capable of dropping a baby. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think a lot of people are going to walk away from this movie with many, many takes, right? I hope, uh, I, who knows what people walk away with. Um I know I walked away with uh, a couple of things, one especially is just like, you know, love comes in, love can be tested and your sense of, your sense of worth is going to be tested and, you know, we're all going to have moments where we just don't know why we're here and what we want to do and it can hit you at different moments. It can hit you in a vacation, it can hit you at at work, it can hit you anywhere. So, you know, uh, it's just kind of how you handle those tests are going to be very important.
0: Um, so, you know, we, we talked about how this is a movie that, that doesn't get made a lot anymore. This kind of, uh, comedies, um, and the studio comedies have really disappeared. Uh, this one is on Hulu. Um, your last big one coming to America was on Amazon, um, but was a big movie with a, you know, big budget. Um, and you know, that was obviously a huge moment in your, in your career, um, this sort of continuing of, of Eddie Murphy's legacy in, in Coming to America. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about that, too, because I really enjoyed that film and, and your performance in it. Um, what was the uh, what was the experience like of, of meeting him for the first time? Because I know you kind of got to know him before you actually mm-hmm. did the movie, right? And he was a big hero of yours. Oh, still was a hero.
1: I uh, got into stand-up comedy and the transition into acting uh, because I was so inspired by Eddie's career. I am still inspired by his career. Uh, he is just the guy. So uh, filming coming to America with him was um, was nothing less than just whoa. You know, there's no other word to use. <laughs> I can't think of another word to use. I Maybe mean, there are, there are no words, man. Uh, you know, who's your hero Rona?
0: I don't know. I have I have, a, I have a lot of them. A lot of uh, a lot of comedy heroes because I was just a, a big comedy nerd as a kid. So oh, you know, a lot of the. Uh, okay a lot of the SNL people and, um, it's hard to pick one, but, and I have, I have met a lot of them through this podcast, which is very surreal.
1: Yeah. Yeah, man. Um, well, there's only one for me, man. Um, and it's funny cause we kind of share the same interests as far as, um, you know, uh, inspirations go as well, which is really wild. He's, he just respects the ones that came before him. Um, uh, just so much. He's a student of, he's still a student of, um, not just comedy but like film and he just uh he's a he's a sponge of just pop culture and i i think that's why his 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 uh his is uh, you know his 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 uh his his characterization stays so fresh and he's just he's just one of a fucking kind he's like a once in a once in a lifetime person so i uh i was just more than privileged to share the, the scenes with him um and uh, I can't wait to do it with him again one day, man. Hello. You want
0: some tickets, man? No, thank you. I am King Akim jaffer King of Zemunda. And I believe that you are the heir to the throne of Zemunda. My firstborn child
1: and my only son. Yes, my son.
0: Did you feel like there was some pressure on you through that movie because you were, you know, sort of being framed as the next Eddie Murphy or the successor to this, you know, <laughs> franchise or, or those because nah. you know, there were headlines yeah. like that and that was out there and that kind of stuff. I mean, did you how did you take that in? No, nah,
1: just you can't put no pressure on yourself. That that affects your performance and um your decisions on the, on, on the set and how you how you are going to approach the material you can't put that much pressure on yourself it really fucks with you and I, i've seen i've seen some of my favorite people crumble with that sort of pressure so I, i'm a i'm a big fan of um i'm just a student you know i'm I'm a student of uh the people who come before me as well so i try to remember i'm only me i can't be anyone else um I, uh, I I do things the way I want to do them. I've gotten this far in my career and in my life doing the things that, uh, you know, making the decisions that I, I've made the way I think that she, they, they should be made. So continue to do them and learn from them, things like that. So I can't just change that all up because I'm in a, uh, you know, one of the greatest films of all, you know, the sequel to one of the greatest films of all time, you know, just can't change that up, you know. So I remember that almost, you know, remind, remind myself of that almost every day when I was on that set. And it helped. It helped a lot. It helped a lot. I, I, I remember uh, right, my first scene I've ever sh- I ever shot was just me getting chased by that lion in that movie. And that was the first scene I think we shot of the, of the movie. And I was like, wow. Wow, this is crazy. This is nuts. I'm I, 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 I meant to be here. I'm supposed to be here. There's no imposter syndrome going on right now. And I want to get this movie everything and i I blew my back out doing certain scenes i um, i i I got sick i just i just gave so much because i don't that's what i do like i I can't i can't not give a piece of material um my fullest so um
0: yeah that's that is impressive to not have imposter syndrome when you're surrounded by eddie murphy and arsenio hall and tracy morgan and on and on and on leslie
1: and all those dudes man just just people you watch every day um, but again, me and Kiki, uh, she and Anzamo, those, those two uh, actors were very um, important in that experience because we were young and we were, you know, we, we all probably felt some insecurities here and there with the film and we just kind of stuck together. So I would say um, Eddie's, Eddie's uh, patience and his guidance and his, uh, his, his presence just helped a lot. Dude uh, was so present in every scene and every decision. So that helped but hanging around you know the young uh future uh, of uh this business this art form is is played a huge you know role in that comfort that I had on set too
0: did any give you any career advice or any any the sort of things that you that you think about in terms of the choices that you make or or what you want to do uh, i
1: got a good head on my shoulders <laughs> <laughs> really, i'm super humble and i'm just like you know i'm just in the moment all the time i, I don't think I I listen, I, I listen, I, I grew up around older people my whole life, right? So I always listen. I always listen to the, the, the people, you know, people who have more knowledge of me. I just listen to them speak and I listen to Eddie all the time. I'd pick his brain about random things like um Muhammad Ali, Bruce Lee and Charlie Chaplin and uh a couple uh funny stories. he has some of the best stories ever. He has the best stories ever. So I would just um but it wasn't like, you know, we I hang out at his house. Uh, Pre-COVID, we would hang out at his house all the time. So it wasn't like um, you know I wasn't gonna see him later that day or you know like or after the movie or anything like that. So we um, we cool, you know. He, uh, he he good people and his family is beautiful. So uh, you know, is uh, him and him and his son Miles were like writing partners. So um, and his his daughter Bella was in the movie too. We um we chill, man. You know everyone's cool. Uh, it was just the... Uh, an amazing family of artists who just love this this thing that we do.
0: Coming up, Jermaine talks about how he started doing comedy at such a young age and why he wants his next stand-up special to be unlike anything he's ever done before. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our conversations with some of Jermaine's co-stars in The Drop, like Gillian Bell and Aparna Nancherla, as well as our episodes with his other collaborators, including Lil Rel Howery and the Lucas Brothers, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Jermaine Fowler. So like Eddie Murphy, you started out as a stand-up pretty young. Um, how did you decide that that was something you wanted to do? How did you get into it? I didn't have enough attention at home. <laughs> 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 My parents
1: were always fighting. I, I was... I, was, I felt like, I do not know what I felt like. I, I just knew that I liked making my sister laugh. Uh, there were times when my parents would get into really terrible arguments, and I would um, put on little shadow puppet shows for my sister to make her laugh. Or, um, you know, when we go to bed, I would tell, like, a bedtime story for her, like, a really funny, stupid bedtime story for everybody to listen to. So that was um, a pattern that I had. And I realized I liked talking and I like doing it in front of people, and I like performing. So that was when I realized I wanted to be a performer. But as far as stand-up goes, I mean, Deaf Comedy Jam was always in the house. Um, We always um, loved Martin, loved uh, Chris Tucker, and watched Deaf Comedy Jam religiously, um, and uh, Kings of Comedy, like all the time. And then I realized I wanted to do stand-up after my neighbor, Grady, who was like a couple of doors down in my apartment complex gave me this Eddie Murphy raw VHS tape. And you might've heard the story before, but it, it, uh, it changed uh, my life. Like I watched it every day. And it was the first time <laughs> it was like the first time I watched something that uh, truly like spoke to me. Like I was like, Whoa. And I think right then and there, like I had that epiphany, it clipped, like it literally just clipped. I was like, I'm doing this. And now no one's going to fucking stop me. And I, I haven't stopped. I mean, I stopped <laughs> about four years ago, but... <laughs> <laughs> but you've gotten Man, back to it, right? I'm coming back, yeah. Uh, I've been um, picking my spots and trying to find the, uh, the rhythm again. But it was, a, it was a tumultuous couple years when I felt like I needed to step away from it.
0: What was the scene like when you started? Because you really kind of started... Uh, you grew up in, in around D.C., but you started in New York, right?
1: No, no, no. Um, so I started at 17 uh, years old in... In D- DC, D- 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 Maryland, Virginia, the DMV area. And uh, I was doing that for about a year and a half before I moved to New York. So in that time, I was uh, performing with comics like Upon a Nontrilla, Ruins. Yeah, is so- in the movie. Cool. Yeah, Andy Haynes and uh, wow. uh, Ryan Connor, John McBride, Diana Sias, um um Kojo Monte. Like, there was a just, uh, you know, a gang, Samson, um, so many, like, amazing comedians uh, that I just grew up around. And the funny thing is, they would drive me home after every show if I didn't have a ride or if it was too far. <laughs> like, Will Hessler, Herbie Herbie Gill, like, it was um, just so many, Travis Irvine, so many comics that, like, just kind of, like, took me under their wing because uh, I was a broke, little, dumb boy who just didn't, you know, see himself doing anything else. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a, I think it's the best era, the best scene as far as stand up comedy goes. Everyone is just a murderer right now and doing so much greatness. And um, it's still a great scene. I feel like the best comedy specials and the best, you know, uh, albums have ever been recorded in DC.
0: Yeah. And then how did things change for you when you came to New York?
1: I was broke. I was poor. <laughs> I was I had no food. I it lost. was even harder. It was harder. Yeah. Well, I lost 20 pounds. I looked like shit cuz I, I I was pretty I was pretty good looking before I moved to New York. Then I got to New York and I got ugly. as Shit. I I was like <laughs> what happened to me? My dad thought I was uh having unprotected sex. He thought I was he, he thought I caught a bug or something like that. Yeah. And he was like using using condoms, right? I was like dad, I don't have AIDS, so stop. I don't know why you yeah. keep asking me that. Uh so he was totally <laughs> worried about me that's how that's
0: how bad you look
1: yeah no real no 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 joke like uh i was i was the definition of a starving artist so i remember when um uh i moved to every damn borough but staten island uh i would scam my way into comedy clubs all the time uh i would eat garlic knots for breakfast lunch and dinner sometimes uh one meal a day i would take trains everywhere i would walk everywhere. I barked, uh, comedy tickets for for comedy, for comedy, um, club tickets, uh, or comedy clubs to sell tickets, whatever you want to call it. I forget the term. Um, and, uh, I remember I would work retail from, I wake up at five in the morning, get off at, uh, you know, get off at five or six, go do comedy at seven, go home at three, wake up at five again. And it was a terrible lifestyle. Like I lost so much weight. I was depressed, but nothing would stop me. The only thing that kept me going was the group of people I had around me at the time. Um, just a, a group of skateboarders who worked at Billabong with me. Uh, There's company named Elder, my dude Worm. Um, just a, 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 a Kevin King, he's a tattoo artist now. Who All amazing artists in their own right are doing great shit right now. Um, but... Um, Yeah. And then um, finally got my big break uh, performing at the comic strip live, which is where I got my first manager. It was a duo uh, named, uh, their names were Richie Tienkin and Bob Wax. They used to manage Eddie Murphy and they saw me Yeah, They saw me on stage and they were like, you're us of Eddie. And I'm like, whatever you say, man, uh, if you can give me some stage time, I'll take it. (laughs) And so... (laughs) That was my first sort of like break because they would put me on stage and they pay me 400 bucks a week to do shows over and over again at, at this club. And they would add up to 400 bucks a week. And that was that was how, that was uh, the amount of money I would pay for rent. And so I couldn't miss a show. Otherwise, I'd be 50 bucks you know short or 100 bucks short. So I had to keep performing. And um, I would do that over and over and over again, and I just would hustle and hustle and you know uh, do commercials, and then I, I would do sketches on YouTube, and those sketches lead to other opportunities because um, my friend Kevin Barnett he wrote this dope sketch called uh, Homo Thugs about these uh, homophobic in the closet gangsters, and it <laughs> murdered, and uh, he died uh, recently, but he's like the person, like yeah, he 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 definitely was uh, my he was my favorite like comedian um you know when i was in the scene in new york and he was like he made me laugh more than anybody and he wrote the the thing that you know gave me the break i needed um and uh, it changed my um it changed everything for me so yeah 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 cuz people would call uh really him they would call him all the time cuz he wrote it he was like just this he was he was a he was like a, a script doctor they would call him uh to to fix things up um to to write things and all this awesome stuff and you know, uh, then we did a couple sequels of that sketch for a web series, and we were just doing well at that point. We, uh, we got a, we got a, the opportunity to do, um, Code on MTV, um, and that was awesome, uh, and I, I, I I remember, uh, at the time, I was probably doing, um, this, uh, this, this ABC diversity showcase, which, uh, at the time was where you know, they get, um, anyone who's not white <laughs> to do, uh, <laughs> To do comedy or or, or a, a scene from a, a play or you know whatever and um, it was that was an opportunity for me too so I did a sketch called um that I wrote called Black Genie and it was about this black genie who makes his white owner feel guilty about the wishes he makes <laughs> uh, it murdered and killed and that's when I started meeting all these um these executives at uh, different um, networks to you know tell my my story you know for whatever pilot or you know development
0: yeah is that is that what led to the uh the pilot with whoopi goldberg yeah that's exactly
1: what led to it that's exactly what led to it um and that's when i met her we're still friends today she like gave me she gave me some 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 gems man and uh she's definitely like uh she's a big sister in all this right now so um yeah but the beginnings were so like humble dude like you you have no idea like i've i've heard worse stories but um all stories, all necessary stories. And I remember what kept me going was uh, not just the people around me, but listening to uh, similar stories, uh, Hannibal Burris sleeping on the train and, um, you know, uh, just just artists who just, uh, you know, Inside You and Davis came out at one point. I remember watching that like, yeah, that's us, that's us, you know. Um, yeah, I- I'll never forget it, man. I can't believe I'm 34. Uh, you know, I've been doing this 17 years, dude. It's just a strange, weird... Oh, God, it's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: since you were kind of, you know, had Eddie Murphy as an idol, was SNL on your radar? Was that something you were actively going for at any point? Dude,
1: man, I wanted to be on SNL so bad. At one point, Michael Che, uh, it was such a big deal when Che got um got a weekend update, right? Because it, 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 he was only doing comedy for, like, such a short amount of time, and then he got hired. And he was he was like just the perfect like get for that show. Uh and then Pete Davidson. And because um, I remember at one point I wanted to do it. Like I, I I wanted to do it. Even Hannibal got a writing job. And that was a big deal when Hannibal got the writing job and Mulaney got the writing job. It was like just huge for everybody. We were like, yeah, we winning. it. <laughs> it was dope. It was great for the scene, man. Just for stand-ups to get those opportunities. But I wanted to do SNL. And then I remember, I just remembered that I didn't want to be a part of it i even like sent tapes like i remember sending who was there i was sending someone some some impressions because they were looking for impressions and they said send in a tape so i sent them some tape i forget who but yeah i did i did that thing and um i never got called in or anything like that whatever but i've always wanted to be a part of it like who wouldn't want to be a part of like a live format like that like it sounds so cool especially from like the stand-up world that's that's something of course i don't want to do that but then i didn't pursue it that hard because i didn't want to be a part of a show that would last that long the contract's about seven years and i was like damn would that stop me from getting specific gigs um i remember uh sorry to bother you was coming up and i was like man i'm happy i didn't SNL because I want to be able to do this movie. I really want to do film. I really want to, I don't know. The freedom to me is the most important thing. I, I need to be kind of able to go do other stuff.
0: So I wanted to talk about, sorry to bother you, but one other thing I wanted to touch on just because we were talking about the sort of stops and starts and and pilots and stuff is um, this uh, Quinta Brunchen show that that, that didn't go, but I know she's kind of been talking about it a lot, um, in interviews recently. And she mentioned, she kind of mentioned it, uh, in her Emmy acceptance speech, cause she thanked uh, Larry Wilmore for, for being a mentor of hers. Cause I know he was also involved in that show. Um, what, what was that, uh, experience like for you of, of putting that show together and, um, and obviously, you know, disappointing that it didn't happen, but, but what, oh, can man. you talk about that?
1: Well, first of all, it's just a part of the game that we all, Play here in this. Yeah,
0: you get Whoa. used to it in a way.
1: <laughs> I mean, not just used to it. You just kind of gotta do the thing and let it go. You, you can't. Yeah, man. You just can't. You can't linger on uh, auditions or uh, the results of things all the time. Especially even this movie. Like I can't be refreshing my phone every time. Yeah, you can't do that, man. You gotta let it go. Let it go and move on. um That's what this is. It's it's you giving something away. You know. So we were developing a show. uh, It was me, Quinta, Larry Wilmore, and um, we had a writer's assistant um, by the name of uh, Ellington Wells, who was helping us uh, with the writing. And it was an amazing experience because we were just building the show from the ground up. And we were um, just kind of piecing together each of our stories to build one brand new story. And the story was about these Two really good friends, best friends who decide to have sex one day um, just to say they did it and see how it felt, you know, and then uh, one of them gets pregnant. Um, You can guess the one. And and then uh, uh, they decide to keep the baby because they love each other. And it's just a beautiful premise for a show. It was lovely um so it was a very warm room very emotional room a lot of times um but we wrote a great pilot and um we remember um you know uh sending the scripts in and getting feedback back and you know it, it, it just wasn't for the network you know uh but it would have been a great show uh it would have been an awesome show but it wasn't for them at the time and uh it would have been cool to do something like that uh with her but who cares um she's doing so beautiful right now and she's doing so fucking well man and I I couldn't be more proud and happy for that woman so uh,
0: I mean I, I do wonder now that she is as successful as she is if that'll ever come back around that, that so maybe knows? someone I, will say hey maybe we should make that other show I don't
1: know it's, That's a. I think it's a Larry Wilmore question oh, we gotta figure that out because uh, I think it's owned by CBS that's who was developing with this and um, maybe uh, Larry Wilmore has a piece of that I'm not sure so Um, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be, man. Uh, I don't know. But, uh, you know, even like in in the midst of that, you know, we Quinta, she's always been a person I thought of to work with. So like there have been beyond that show that we were developing. There was a film that, you know, we uh, attached her to, um, that, um, me and my uh, co-writer slash director Joey Wow was writing. Um, it's called Deadass. Uh, It was about, uh, this, um, this this uh this drug dealer whose best friend gets killed and his ghost comes back to haunt him. And so he has to go find the dude's killer so we can leave him the hell alone. Uh <laughs> so that that we had Quinta involved in that too. So like it's it's just, you know, we keep, you know, I like to work with the people I like to work with, and that's it. So she's definitely um one of them. And I uh yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Either way, um, I'm so proud of her
0: yeah um you mentioned sorry to bother you which is a favorite of mine um I love that movie and i, I know it was your it was really your first movie role in a lot of ways right yeah was um, my first movie, man. um it's a good first movie uh and you got to work with uh Lakeith Stanfield who is such a unique performer and, and so great um i know that that scene uh the improvised scene where you're sort of uh complementing each other that was uh, that was something that you guys kind of worked out together is that right
1: um, in a way it, it was it was scripted it was originally scripted um, but then I remember me and Lakeith we did the scene for Boots on set and Boots didn't like how it was done so he told us to just make some shit up <laughs> he said uh, he said go ahead and go with your go with your gut go with your heart I forget the exact words he said but he, we we basically improvised a lot of the lines in that in that scene that, that you see today in the memes and shit um, so, he was right, though. He was right. You know, it, it's one of those things you can't really, you know, right. If you're familiar with anyone who's about to get in a fight or anyone who always is in a, a fight they're about to get into. Like, I know so many people who never fight, they get into about-to fights all the time. And that's one of those situations where, like, they're just talking so much shit. And it gets to the point where they're like, Are y'all going to fucking fight or not? You know, come on, man. And so that was uh, definitely one of those scenarios that uh, I've seen happen many times. And I think Boots felt it'd be more dynamic if we just winged it. How you doing? Fantastic. Fantastic. I hope you have a good day. I Hope you have a better week. Mm, I hope your month is full of successful days and a lot of great ventures. I hope you just come up, brother. I hope your whole fucking year is spectacular. Oh, you hope my year is spectacular? Yeah. You got something you want to say? You got something you want to say? You smell great. You smell great. What is that? Burberry. What you got on?
0: Mm, I forgot. It smells expensive. It's just
1: deodorant. Okay. Yeah. Good. We yeah. smelling good. So we smelling smelling good brothers. Yeah, out you, you, you are awesome, man, and I appreciate yeah, you. Yeah. Help you find yourself. Yeah, too. we should go out. Get drinks. Go want get drinks? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How yeah. many drinks? Two, three, three, four, five, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. all of them. On me? It's on me. No, it's on me it's on now. You? Yeah, it's oh, on me now.
0: Yeah, it's on me now. What's it been like getting back to stand-up after a break? It's been emotional, dude.
1: It's been hard because I feel like um, I missed a few beats. I missed a few steps. Um, I don't watch the news anymore, so I don't really... (laughs) So you're not (laughs) talking about that? No, man. It's fucking... No. It's not... I don't know. I just... uh, I talk about myself. I talk about, you know, what I've been going through personally. And I just try to be as honest as I can and if it's not funny, at least I was honest. So that's what matters to me right now. Uh, I, I think that's the the the. I, I want to bridge that more. Is to I want to be as vulnerable as I can, and you know, be as funny as I can at the same time. So I want to murder while making people cry. I want people. I want people to laugh while they're you know you know feeling something, right? Um, I think that's what Richard Pryor did the best was um, telling you. He was screaming for help, you know, on stage, just like anytime he was on stage, he was just crying for help. And I thought that was uh, just a beautiful thing that I, I, I miss in this form of art that I love so much. So that's my goal. That's the goal right now. I'm just trying to recapture that that feeling I was um, going through when I first got into stand-up comedy, that passion. i just trying to, like, feel that again. But I can't. I'm not that same person. I'm not that, that dude anymore. I am who I am right now, so it's a uh, it's it's all new. Like it's just me, you know, finding a different way into what I want to talk about because I can't I can't approach things the way I approached them when I was a kid. I, I'm not a kid, um, and I, I felt like that. I try to look at my favorite artists as, as far as musicians go, or even artists like Basquiat go, and just like the just the progress they've made throughout their careers and i always want everything i do to be different so uh, i definitely want my next stand-up film uh to be um just a complete departure from the first one in, in every way possible so i'm just searching for a way to execute that the right way
0: are you actively working towards that of a special uh an hour
1: yeah it just gets tough because i, I w- what i want to do is get a residency somewhere in la or even uh dc or even um New York. But uh what what always kind of puts a a little um a halt in that plan is when I get a gig like a film or something. <laughs> yeah. And nothing pulls wrong with you that. away. I'm, yeah. I mean I I literally love it. I love acting. But uh if I could find a couple months where I could block out to just truly, truly craft this hour, I'd be so happy. Um but again, if Christopher Nolan calls and says, hey, man, you got to do this movie. I'd be like, all (laughs) right, Chris. I'm not going to say no.
0: Do you feel like, in in general, you have a hard time saying no to opportunities? Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, And not because I don't think it'll ever happen again. Nothing like that. I just truly love movies, man. I love films. I love films. They got me out of so much growing up. I remember when I first, like, when my dad kicked me out of the house when I was 18, like, the moment my dad said, oh, you want to do stand-up comedy? You want to run the streets at night? Go to comedy clubs at night? Well, you a man now. Get out of my house. That's what he told me. The oh, first man. thing I did, I got like a, I had like a, like a a hamper full of clothes that I owned and a backpack with a CD player in it. Um, <laughs> I remember I just like walked to the movie theater and I watched Peter Jackson's King Kong. And I feel like that's a long-ass movie. I can figure life out within three hours. And uh, I did. I knew what I wanted to do. I went to my grandma's house and, you know, asked her if i could stay here for a couple of days that turned out to be a year and a half while i didn't stand up you know um just trying to find myself so movies uh, i owe a great debt to um they till to, to this day I, they've done so much for me and um i'll always just uh, just enjoy um building you know worlds and characters and just the imagination i have is just so vivid and vast that like that's, that's where it fits. It fits so well in like a a stand up stage, a one man show, or more film. Uh,
0: so we end the podcast by talking about some firsts in our segment called the first laugh. Uh, so I want to go all the way back to your childhood. Do you remember the first piece of comedy or one of the first that made you laugh really hard?
1: The first time I laughed, uh, I cr- uh, like really hard. It was like um, I remember I cried laughing. I was like crying. laughing. I could not stop laughing. I'm glad you brought this up because I thought about it recently because I was playing the song for my daughter and my son. Uh, I cried laughing for the first time when it was an episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and Will Smith and Carlton Banks had to strip their way out of Las Vegas or something like that. And there's a song they would play. It, uh, It would go Tonto, jump on it, jump on it, jump on it. And I think it was by the Sugar Hill Gang or something uh ooga, ooga, ooga. anyway they're like i remember that song so well anyway they had to dance the way off stage and i remember at one point will and carlton were on stage together doing that that dance with their hips and um uh, carlton jumped on will and uh will swung carlton around kind of like um, like a tango dancer or something like that you know like he just swung around his hips and stuff and at one point you can tell carlton is obviously a dummy like a like a stunt dummy and he's just swinging his dummy around, and at one point <laughs> throws Carlton across the room, and he lands behind the bar and breaks some of the glass or something like that. And the camera cuts back to Will, just like, and he starts dancing. <laughs> and I I remember that so well because I remember crying and screaming of laughter, and my parents going, "What the hell is wrong with you?" And I was like, "Mommy." They threw call to the room and all, that, all the stuff. And I was just like, it was so funny. And at that moment, I think I got addicted to just like stunt dummy humor. Um, <laughs> like, if you watch like old all that, like um, old all that episodes or um, Martin or like anyone who used the dummy <laughs> to personify. You know, like just uh, it just it would it always kills me to this day. Just to this day.
0: It goes um, all the way to the drop with the uh, with the doll baby.
1: <laughs> it goes, yeah, it's full circle, man. Holy yeah. shit, man! You just brought it back. Baby. Um, but no, that was the, that was the hardest. That was the I don't know, like my earliest memory of me laughing to the point where I definitely pooped my pants. <laughs> um,
0: once you started doing stand up, do you remember the first joke uh, or bit that you had that really worked that you could keep going back to and that you felt like, oh, I, I might have something here.
1: Oh, my God. So for the first six months of stand-up, I would, I would eat a dick. Like, I was bummed. <laughs> Bad. I was not funny. I would read this, this book called uh, The Comedy Bible by Judy Carter or something like that. And just to try to figure out, what's wrong with me? Like, what, what am I doing wrong Comedy Bible? And I would read that almost every day, um, trying to figure my shit out. And at one point, I threw the book away. and was like, man, this ain't working. And uh, I almost quit one day. I almost quit after I did a show at the Firehouse Grill in Arlington, Virginia. I bombed so bad. At one point, the host gets on stage uh, and tells the audience, hey, man, this comedy shit ain't easy, man. This comedy (laughs) shit ain't easy. And he starts dancing to him saying it. This comedy shit ain't easy. This comedy shit ain't easy. And the crowd was like clapping and laughing. I'm like, fuck! I was so mad, man. I went home and I told my uh, comedy peers at the time, uh, Samson and Keith, the comedian, Matt Stobel and a couple other, I forgot, uh, I think Travis Johnson. I was like, yo, I'm quitting, man. I'm going back to community college and go back to work at uh, wherever <laughs> I was working at. And they were like, why? I'm like, man, I don't think it's working, man. I don't think it's for me. And they were like, dude, we all have those moments, but you got to keep going. And I was like, I'll do one more show. And I remember on the way to the show, I was writing, because I used to live around a bunch of like um, riffraff back in the day. In West Hyattville, Maryland. And I remember what I was doing wrong. I wasn't talking about me or where I was living. And I started to talk about it. And so the first joke that I did, I finally got a laugh. It was a joke. I remember it, too. It goes, "Um, hey, everybody. Uh, there was there was a restaurant called uh, The Silver Diner, right? And it was a 50s themed diner. And the joke was basically, uh, hey, everybody. <laughs> um, uh, I just got back from The Silver Diner. You guys heard this diner? <laughs> and they'd be like "Yay! it's
0: a local
1: spot <laughs> it was like a local staple and they'd be like yeah I'm like you're not familiar with the, the silver diner it's this 50s themed diner uh that is so dedicated to the 50s that they didn't serve me and <laughs> it would murder every time like, i would use it as an opener or, or as a closer if i was bombing i'd go back to it like that was the first joke that didn't <laughs> that's and
0: great
1: it's so dumb it's an easy joke i remember like going back and i'm like I think even Matt TV did a, a sketch about a 50s steam diner that was like that, and I had to stop doing the joke. And I was like, yeah. damn. But that was the first <laughs> joke that like did super well for me. And uh, it got me a lot of, um, I put it on MySpace, and I remember it killed. And I, I think I flew to LA because of that joke. Somebody put me on a show in LA at the Hollywood Improv, and I met a Dope ass comedian named Todd Rex who went to school with my father in D.C., which is very awkward, awkward and fucking like you know random and shit. But that was that joke opened up a lot of comedic doors for me.
0: What about the first time that you met one of your comedy heroes? Um, I might be Eddie Murphy or or somebody else. But if we want to tell the, the story of, of actually meeting uh, Eddie for the first time,
1: um, let me do two. First one was Patrice O'Neal. Uh yeah. So I, I uh, would cold call the Pittsburgh Improv from Maryland every day. And then I found out the booker was there on Tuesdays. And I was like, all right, cool. I called every Tuesday. And I called him every Tuesday and said, hey, you have a host for Patrice um, this uh, whatever weekend or whatever month uh, coming up? And he'd be like, um, no, but I'll give you a call back if I need you. But he wouldn't call back and I would call him back. Relentlessly. <laughs> and he, he, he finally gave me the spot. I hosted for Patrice. Uh, I didn't know where I was staying. Um, this comedian at the time, I'm getting ahead of myself. Never mind. Hold on. I got the gig and I got an Amtrak ticket to Pittsburgh. And this is before Google Maps was around. You had to just kind of wing it. You know, you had to go to, um, what was that old MapQuest? You had to print out the MapQuest. So I had to print out MapQuest. And then from the Pittsburgh Amtrak station, um, there was an Uber. I had to walk there and that was a long walk and I'm a walker. So that was a long walk and I sweat so much. I walked so long that by the time I got to the, uh, the improv, the show started.
0: So, (laughs) and you're the host, so you, the show shouldn't start before you get there.
1: No, man, it was just a dumb miscalculation on my part. And I remember I get on stage, I didn't know what I was going to talk about. I just knew I just wanted water. And so get on stage and I bombed so bad. And I remember Patrice, uh, I get off stage, I brought up the, uh, the feature act and I, I go backstage, and Patrice says, Hey, y'all, let me tell you something, man. No matter how bad you're bombing, um, <laughs> oh, wait, this is the setup. This is what happened. I, I bombed so bad that I told the I had to remind the audience of who was headlining. So I was bombing. I'd be like, All right, cool, but hey, we got Patrice O'Neill here tonight, yeah. y'all. Woo. The audience <laughs> was like, Woo, thank God. And I was like, Ugh. And so after I got off stage, <laughs> Patrice says, Hey, look, man. No matter how bad you're bombing Don't bring my name to this shit And I laughed my ass I was like I'm sorry man I'm so fucking sweaty And he was like You good, you good And then after the show I forgot to book a hotel And a place to stay And I remembered um, That uh, one of my friends Who was a comedian named Bryson uh, Turner His brother lived in Pittsburgh He's from Pittsburgh I was like hey you think your brother Can let me stay with him He's like why would you book What is wrong with you And I'm like I don't know and just can, he, can I stay with him? He was like, he just so he was so mad at me that I didn't know where I was staying that night. He was like an older brother kind of figure type. Of, he was great dude. Um, and then uh, I as I was trying to figure that out, a big black SUV pulled up right next to me, and uh, the window rolled down, and uh, in the in the passenger seat was uh, Patrice's uh, girlfriend, Vaughn, uh, who was a dope comic. and uh, and Patrice was driving the car, and he goes. Uh, Hey, Jermaine. I was like, yo, what's up, man? He's like, "Uh, you need a ride? And I was definitely stranded. But I was so embarrassed to tell him that I had nowhere to go. I just told him, (laughs) oh, no, I'm good. I got somebody picking me up. Patrice responded "Eh," and rolled his window back up and just drove away. (laughs) And I was like, damn, no follow-up questions shit. (laughs) So I walked to my friend's house and uh, just, you know, I, I, I figured out by then. But um that was uh, my Patrice story. But the first time I met Eddie it was super funny because uh um <laughs> I uh my friend uh Miles who uh, I write with, um he's he's a he's a great writer. Um he um he told me he was watching um this football, no no, this boxing match at his house. And uh Miles is uh, Eddie's son. And uh I knew that. Um and then um I took a I think I took an Uber or maybe I took an Uber up to um, Miles' house. But I was going up these hills, these windy roads. And I'm like, damn, uh, Miles lives uh, in the, you know, uh, up in the hills. That's cool. And so uh, I get to this gated community and uh, I get inside. I'm like, it's a big ass house. Miles is doing pretty good. And uh, I realized this might be his father's house. And uh, I get inside and I hear someone playing piano and I'm like, I can't be Eddie. And I turned around and Eddie playing uh, <laughs> this, this piece on the piano. And it was lovely. It was great. And um, at one point, um, uh, we just started talking, you know, about comedy and boxing and all this stuff. And at one point, I think uh, Eddie asked me what my favorite stand-up comedy special was, And my favorite stand-up comedy special of all time, as much as Eddie Murphy Raw got me the stand-up, it, uh, you know, it's still a classic today, um, it's Richard Pryor live in concert. Right, and that special is the perfect comedy special ever. It's like a one man show masked in a stand up comedy format. It's just, it's nothing's better than that. There's nothing funnier than that special. Period. I'll fight you on it. And so, um, but I was so nervous to tell Eddie that. Right, I was like, damn, do I tell Eddie that my favorite comedy special is which you're probably live in concert, or do I tell him it's my favorite comedy special that he's ever made, which is Delirious? And so I was like, oh, it's, it's Delirious, man. Delirious is my favorite. And he goes, Oh yeah, well mine's is Richard Pryor
0: live in concert. And I was like, <laughs> You're like Oh
1: damn. Yeah. I was like, Shit, damn it. And I was like, Well yeah, that one's amazing. That's it's just perfect. And I just like was backpedaling, like, oh, fuck, so I senior <laughs> Arsenio that story. And Arsenio was like, Yeah, next time just tell the truth, man. <laughs> I was like, yeah, no. <laughs> I didn't know it was in the tough spot. <laughs> um, but no, um, I uh that was the first time I met a man. And, You know, he's just like, uh, he's he's just a great dude. And, you know, he's just great. He's just, there's nothing more, better. You know, he's just an awesome person.
0: Well, thanks, man. This was, this was a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I've, I've really loved your work for a long time. So uh, I'm glad we got to do this. Oh man, I
1: appreciate you very much, man. Uh, Thank you so much and I appreciate the support. Thank you.
0: Thank you again to Jermaine Fowler for being my guest on this week's episode. The drop is streaming now on Hulu, so definitely check that out if you haven't already. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at last Laugh Pod on Instagram where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.